Please find Matthew 18 with me. Matthew 18. Have you ever been involved in a dumb argument? I'm ashamed to say I've been involved in a few. What is it that makes a dumb argument dumb? What are the categories of dumb arguments? I thought of, I thought of them. Uh, one way to have a dumb argument is to argue a position that's wrong and you later come to realize just how wrong you were and you're kind of ashamed about how opinionated you were and strong-willed and you just kind of shake your head at your past self. That was a dumb argument to be in. Maybe you've, you've argued with someone over something that was just very silly and inconsequential. You know, you're arguing about whose football team is better or something, but the argument, it turns very serious and maybe it gets personal, maybe even gets physical. And you think, well, that was really silly. But I think the dumbest argument you could ever be in is to be in an argument about which there is no right answer. There is no right position because the question you are arguing over was a dumb question and a question about which there is no right answer and it was wrong-headed that you were so obsessed with the question. When you have that sort of argument, there is no winner. Everyone's a loser and everyone is equally dumb. When you're arguing about something, that shouldn't even be an argument. That's exactly the sort of argument the disciples find themselves in in Matthew 18 and verse 1. Matthew 18 and verse 1 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You have to ask yourself, what do they expect? What do they expect Jesus to say or do? Do they expect him to to rubber stamp one of them as the new hot face of the kingdom? Do you think, do they think he'll pat Peter on the shoulder and say, here's my right hand man, he gets a double share of all the kingdom treasure? Do they think he'll build a podium Olympic style and award bronze, silver, and gold medals to the top three disciples? How would you even judge that? Isn't it obvious what a dumb argument this is to have? Well, it seems like as far as the apostles are concerned, the answer is no. It is not obvious to them what a dumb, dumb, dumb argument this is to have. And I say that because by my count, Four times in the Gospels, they have this exact same argument. This is one of four times in the Gospels the disciples are arguing who is the greatest. And so, for example, in Mark 9, they arrive in Capernaum. They've been traveling there. And Jesus asks them what they were discussing on the way. I think he has some idea. But Mark records, they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued argued with one another about who the greatest was. Now, we have to give them some credit there. At least they're ashamed of it. At least they have some inkling when Jesus asks the question that this would be a silly thing to fess up to. At least they're ashamed. Jesus calls them together and he tells them, if anyone would be first, let him be last of all and servant of all. Not arguing about who the greatest is. Let's be putting others ahead of ourselves. And yet it's only a chapter later in Mark chapter 10 when James and John enlist their mother to gain them a higher place in their pursuit of being the greatest. And they request, grant us, Lord, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Mark then records how the arrest of the apostles responded to James and John's request. And it says, when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. But get this, by all accounts, they're not angry because of what a silly request it was. They're not angry because because James and John didn't learn Jesus' lesson from a chapter earlier. They're angry because they didn't think to ask it first. They're angry because they think James and John are going to get a leg up. 
And they want that leg up. And so Jesus must rebuke them all for this dumb argument. He tells them, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, my kingdom has a totally different orientation than that glory and honor seeking that the apostles are doing. The point had still not gotten through the night before Jesus' death of all times. Around the table where they ate the Last Supper, in the shadow of the cross, Luke records, Luke 22, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. It's John's account that I think takes up Jesus' actions at this point, narrates what Jesus not says first, but rather does. He rises from supper, he takes off his outer robe, he wraps a towel around his waist, and one by one he begins washing the disciples' feet. I tend to think of their faces turning red with shame as they realize just what a silly and dumb argument they had. So this is an argument that never goes away in the Gospels. And Jesus' answer to it is consistent. He doesn't settle the argument in the sense that he declares a winner, that he says who is the greatest among the twelve. Instead, what Jesus always does is criticizes the entire argument. He tells them instead of seeking to be great, they should be seeking to be least. They should be seeking to be last. They should be seeking to be servants. And in Matthew 18, Jesus' answer is that they seek to become like children. So look, uh, look again, Matthew 18 and verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here's Jesus' answer on this occasion. In calling to him a child, he put him, the child, in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus chooses here an anonymous child to demonstrate the nature of his kingdom and to teach who is truly great in his kingdom. So what I want us to do this morning is to focus our, attention, focus our attention on this answer Jesus gives to this dumbest argument in the Gospels. What exactly is it about children that the rest of us need to learn from? Jesus knows that he is really kind of confounding our expectations, turning, turning the normal order of things upside down as he often does. Because, of course, I'm always thinking about what my children need to learn from me. And I'm thinking about all the things that my children don't know and all the things I need to be teaching them. And of course, the Bible puts a very high premium on parents teaching their children. And yet Jesus says there are things that I and the rest of us don't need to teach children, but rather need to learn from them. And I want to think a little bit this morning about what that is. What is it that we need to learn? How is it we need to become like children? And so I have three childlike traits Jesus calls on us to emulate. Three childlike traits Jesus calls on us to emulate. Number one is childlike humility. Childlike humility. This is verse 3 again, Matthew 18 and verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now the first thing I want you to notice is the disciples were wondering in verse 1, who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Their question is about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus' initial answer in verse 3 is not to tell them who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but rather who would just enter the kingdom of heaven in verse 3. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, back up, guys. 
The fact that you're having this argument, it doesn't just call into question your greatness in the kingdom. It calls into question whether you're actually in my kingdom. You're arguing about who's greatest. Let's think about who's just in. Let's start there. Because he is saying this argument is built on an attitude of pride, which is completely antithetical to what my kingdom is about. See, they're hungry to make a name for themselves, to become powerful and influential, impressive, important. They want to get their names out there. They want to be the biggest, the best, the greatest, the most lauded. Jesus is calling them to abandon their ambitions and desires for superiority. In order to illustrate the humility that's essential for entrance into his kingdom, Jesus calls a child in front of these bickering men. This child is not in the crowd to see what favors he can get out of Jesus, what competition he can win between Jesus' disciples. This child doesn't harbor ambitions of defeating and humiliating all those around him in the crowd. Little children have no clue about the social standing of anyone. A person is just a person to a child. They have no clue how much money anyone makes, and even if you told them, it wouldn't mean anything to them. That doesn't mean anything. This child, I guess, is near Jesus because they want to see Jesus. That's my guess on why that child is here. He's here near Jesus because he wants to see Jesus. Not because he wants to win some sort of perverse competition with the rest of Jesus' disciples. Jesus is saying to them, would the rest of you come before me with such singleness of purpose? With such unmixed motives? With such humility that isn't looking around at everyone else and thinking about how much better you are than them? Would that all of you came with the same spirit. Go with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. In Luke 14, Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. And while he's there, he notices the same sort of spirit of pride and competition between everyone who's been invited to this dinner party. This is Luke 14 in verse 7. Luke 14 in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. When you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says instead of jostling to be as close as possible to the head of the table, which was a sign of your standing, a sign of your importance in this room, instead of jostling to be at the head of the table, Jesus says just go ahead and voluntarily sit yourself at the kids' table, basically. Sit at the bottom. Sit with the children. Because ironically... The most humiliating thing in the world is to think too highly of yourself and then to have someone bring your delusion to your attention and to shame you in front of everyone to show that you are not as important as you think you are. Honor we take for ourselves is instantly invalidated. Do you see that with the apostles arguing about who's the greatest? The fact that you're arguing, the fact that you're saying you deserve to be at the top says that actually you deserve to be at the bottom. Honor is one of those things you can never give to yourself. It can only ever... Only ever be given by someone else. Jesus urges us to act humbly, unconcerned if we wind up sitting at the lowest place. Servants of Jesus, like children, don't walk around with their chests puffed out, 
We don't walk around sizing up our honor compared to other people. We don't walk around making sure people always give us the amount of respect we think we deserve. Jesus says, my servants sit at the lowest place. My servants sit at the kids' table. My servants don't exalt themselves. They just let God do all the exalting. Go back with me to, uh, forward to Luke 17. One more passage on this point. Luke 17 and verse 7. Jesus here teaches his disciples a saying that facilitates humility. That facilitates this sort of childlike humility. Luke 17 and verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, quote, come at once, recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus says his servants, his childlike disciples, declare that we are, un- we are unworthy servants because that's exactly what we are. Our service to God is not some great benefit to God as if God desperately needed our help in his omnipotence. We are like children. We know we need our parents more than our parents need us. Isn't that true? Our kids need us more than we need them. We are like that with God. We are in the children's spot. We depend on God, and He does not depend on us in the same way. And when we obey God, it is not primarily for God's good. It is primarily for our good. And so at the heart of this text, at the heart of all these passages we've looked at, is a realistic evaluation of ourselves. And it turns out, the humble way of looking at yourself isn't just good, it's not just beneficial, it's actually realistic. It conforms to reality. We are humble. We are unworthy. We are sinners. To be humble is just to say the truth. We are servants of God. And we are children. And we are not superior to the rest of God's children. And we are not more deserving of other people than other people. And we are weak and we need help. And we are often wrong and we are often backwards. We are unworthy serving a worthy master. We are small and helpless children obeying a big and strong God. This is exactly what the apostles do not understand when they're saying, who is the greatest? Childlike humility, Jesus says, is essential to being one of my children. Number two, I want us to think about the virtue of innocence, of childlike innocence. Go back with me to Matthew 18. This is back to that initial interaction we began with. Jesus calls the child before the crowd. He talks about the humility. You must become like this child. Not to mention greatest. Just enter the kingdom. This is essential. But he doesn't stop at telling his followers to be like the child in that way. He also issues a warning to others about their relationship to his childlike disciples. This is verse 5. So he still has this child in front of him. And he says this in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus is speaking here too, and he's speaking about disciples who are taking up his challenge to be childlike. 
people who forget their pride and self-seeking, people who know God is the only one who deserves to be glorified, and we are just unworthy servants. And as a part of that childlike disposition, in, a, in addition to the humility of the child, Jesus is now implying that childlike disciples will also be innocent in some sense, like children. He begins really speaking about innocence here. Think about this. People who believe and follow Jesus become pure. He washes their sins, and then they allow Jesus to retrain them to be innocent, to act in a pure way with pure hearts. Their hearts are purified. And so, for example, we could just walk through the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus is saying over and over again. I'm going to teach you how to be pure again. I'm going to teach you how to be innocent again. So, for example, instead of treating members of the opposite sex as objects of our lust, Jesus teaches us to learn from him and to see them as people, people made in God's image, who merit respect, who do not, who do not need to be seen as objects because they are not objects. They are creatures of God just like you. Instead of looking for ways to hurt our enemies back, seeing, that, seeing them as objects of our anger, God's children learn to look for ways to do their enemies good. There is a recaptured innocence in Jesus' disciples. Where we see people not objects of our worst impulses, we see them as people who, who deserve dignity. There is a process of regaining innocence when we, we become Jesus' disciples. What Jesus is saying here in verses 5 and 6, in very strong language, is that it is a terrible thing to take away a child's innocence. That's what he's saying. His people are relearning purity and innocence. They're leaving their sinful attitudes and lifestyles behind. So Jesus says, when someone comes along and reintroduces sin to them, when someone comes and causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble, when they help cause a new loss of innocence, it is a terrible tragedy and a terrible crime. And he says, people who are responsible for that, people who help one of my little ones to stumble in this way, deserve great judgment. And he says it in quite a graphic way. Which is, whatever the judgment is these people have coming, it's going to be much worse than the fate of someone who has a giant millstone hung around their neck. Someone who has a a giant, the biggest weight at the gym, who has that strapped around their neck and thrown into the depth of the sea. It's going to be easier for that person than it's going to be for the one who causes one of my little ones to stumble. My people are working to be pure and innocent. And anyone who works against that goal of mine has that coming. Go back with me to Matthew 10 and verse 16. Jesus says this to his disciples as he sends them out to preach. In Matthew 10 and verse 16. Matthew 10 and verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It is easy to allow the ruthless nature of the world to leave us jaded and frightened and paranoid. The world can make us so that we will never see the best of people, the best in people. The world can make it so we're always suspicious about who's trying to get one over on us, always fearful of being victims. What Jesus is trying to teach us is the value of being both wise and innocent. How to be both savvy and also childlike. We can be aware of the danger in the world without becoming like the world or becoming jaded by the world. We can avoid the devil's tactics. We can know his snake-like deceits. We can have a little bit of his, of his way of thinking in us because we're wise as serpents while also embodying the gentleness and hopefulness and peace of a dove. What Jesus is really saying in this 
is that we don't have to make the false choice between being naive and gullible and being cynical and jaded. Often that's what we think. You know, we're kind of cynical about the world and we say, what, you want me to be naive? You want me to fall for everything? Jesus says, no, I don't. But I also don't want you to be cynical who sees the worst in everything and is pessimistic, pessimistic about everything. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Be infants, be babies when it comes to evil, but be thinking, be mature people in your thinking. God urges us to preserve our innocence, see it as a great virtue, to preserve our innocence in a sin-tarnished world. So, so let me give sort of three, three aspects to this, flesh this out a little more. First of all, childlike innocence speaks to our motives. It says something about our motives if we have childlike innocence. We should never want to sin, and we should be on a path so that we don't want to sin. Cruel intentions and sinister plots and subtle emotional manipulation It's not that children don't do those things. It's not that children could do those things, but they don't do them. It's that they're not capable of doing them. A small child is incapable of hatching a sinister plot where they have some evil ulterior motive and they manipulate you to do it. Now, they might want something they shouldn't want, but I've got to tell you, there is a transparent sincerity to kids. They're incapable of hiding their motives. That's why they they fuss and whine all the time, because they're telling you what they want. It's impossible for them to disguise their motives. It's impossible for them to have a hidden agenda. And part of what Jesus is saying is is something like that. You should be innocent in your motives. You should just be quite transparent in what it is you're after and not have hidden ulterior motives. Childlike innocence speaks to, number one, motives. Number two, it speaks to optimism. Speak to optimism about people and about the world. You know, many of us as adults through the years have been trained to always doubt the motives of people to always be suspicious of people, to always be jaded about people and jaded about the world. So, for example, we see someone asking for money, and our immediate impulse is they're just going to use it to buy beer. Maybe they are. And if that's what they're doing, it would be a real shame to give a drunk money for beer, and it would hurt him to do that, and I wouldn't want to do that. But wouldn't it also be a shame? That would be a shame. to to give a drunk money for beer. But wouldn't it also be a shame to close our hearts across the board, to close our hearts to someone who really is in need and really is going to use it for noble, noble ends? Wouldn't that be a shame? It'd be a shame to give someone who didn't deserve it, but it'd also be a shame not to give it to someone who did deserve it. See, our childlikeness helps us regain that optimism, that hope, that there really is good that can be done in the world. So childlikeness speaks to our motives, it speaks to our optimism, and number three, it speaks to our purity. It speaks to our purity. We understand the value of preserving the purity of our children. We do not want to expose them to all the corruption and the evil in the world. We do not want to do that, and we should not want to do that. Their purity is a great gift that we want to preserve. But by the same token, when we are washed, when we are made pure by Jesus, when in his language we are born again, and we become babies again spiritually, when we are washed and made pure, do we really want to run back into the arms of a corrupt, a corrupt and evil world? Do we want to go and corrupt ourselves all over again? It is a great crime 
to corrupt the purity of children, literal children and spiritual children? Might we be taking measures to maintain the purity we have been restored to? And so Jesus says, my disciples must be children, number one, in their humility, number two, in their innocence, and number three, in their trust. This is Matthew 10, rather Mark 10, Mark 10 and verse 13. This is another story about Jesus that involves children in the Gospels. This is Mark 10 and verse 13. Mark 10 and verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hand on them. So we see the disciples here still on their power trip. Um, they're, they're the handlers for this Messiah celebrity that's walking around. And they've got important places to go and important people to meet. And Jesus doesn't have time for these little people. Well, Mark uses a strong word for Jesus' reaction. It says he was indignant. He was outraged. He was angry. Not only does he have time for the children, he says these children are an embodiment of one of the central characteristics of his disciples. The disciples don't need to shoo them away. He says the disciples need to sit at their feet and learn. Verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child does not enter. Don't shoo them away. Sit and learn from them. So what is he getting at? How does one receive God's kingdom? How does one receive God's reign like a child? What Jesus is getting at here is that there is a unique kind of trust exemplified by children who receive Jesus on his terms, without the ulterior motives, without suspicion, who receive Jesus and and see him exactly as he is. There is a a remarkable trust children have. You know, Babies drink their milk without any questioning, without any suspicion, without any reservation. They do not demand to see all the nutritional facts of what it is they're about to ingest. They inherently trust that what they're giving, what they're given is going to be good for them. There is also an inherent understanding in a baby, an inherent understanding of their helplessness, of their dependence, which is why they cry all the time, because they're always asking for help, because they always need help. And there is an inherent trust in the baby that mom and dad will give them what they need. And there is no interrogation. There is no prove it in it. Go go with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has just received back the 72 disciples who he sent out to announce the arrival of of the Messiah throughout the countryside. And when they arrive back, they've received mixed uh, mixed reactions. Some, some they preached to rejoiced at the Messiah's arrival. Others bristled at the intrusion of Jesus and, and bristled at the shakeup of the status quo Jesus represented. But when Jesus re- receives them back, he breaks out into prayer. Luke 10 and verse 21. Luke 10 and verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
So he is contrasting here the wise and understanding with his childlike disciples. Now it's clear when he calls these people wise and understanding, he's being sarcastic because it's the wise and understanding ones who did not understand Jesus and did not receive him and who were blinded. They feel they know so much already that the message of the gospel has no appeal to them. They've got it figured out already. They don't need Jesus. They hold him at arm's length. They're suspicious about him. Those are the wise and understanding. By contrast, Jesus says, the little children are disciples who have placed themselves in Jesus' hands, who have accepted him as he is. Many of them will leave behind their families and possessions and go to die because they believe Jesus is who he says he is. They simply believe what the Master teaches and they simply go where the Master directs. They're like children because of their childlike trust. They willingly accept and believe the message about Jesus. You know, from the beginning, Satan has worked to undermine man's trust in God. He he has sought really to make us grow up in a perverse way and to stop being like children in this sense. Remember what the serpent says to the woman in the garden? He says, you will surely not die, for God knows when you eat of it, when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be a big big girl. You'll be a grown-up. You'll know all the stuff. That's his appeal. Stop trusting God, doubt his motives, and do it for yourself, and you figure it out, and you be the big person. He argues God's commands spring from God's own selfish motives and not, not for our good. God doesn't want you to have good things, he says. If only Eve were more childlike when she was tempted, when she was tempted to call into question God's goodness, when she was tempted to be a big girl without the help of God. And if only we would be more, more childlike when we were tempted to believe the, the, the temptations of, G, uh, of Satan, when we were tempted to believe lame excuses for why it is I can sin and why it is I'm a big kid who can do what I want because I'm an adult. If only Eve continued to believe the best about her creator and to trust that her father knew best. And if only we believed the best about our creator and father always, believing that he knew best. You know, it's this childlike trust in God Moses is trying to cultivate in Israel when he reminds them in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24 that God's commands, they're for our good, always. It really is true, as the old TV show said, Father really does know best. That's something that young children know, and it's something we better know too. So this sermon has, has come in large part from, uh, from material by my good friend Jacob Hudgens. Um, and I want to end by, by reading a passage directly from him. He said this, Imagine a world where Christ's followers lived like little children. No one would seek power within a local church or alienate friends and brothers to achieve it. Christians would be too humble to be deeply offended, to hold long grudges or insist on their opinions when confronted. We would treat one another with kindness, assuming that if someone did us wrong, they didn't intend to. We would treat like we would treat a child. Like little children, we could expose contradictions in our logic and common practice, and like little children, we would drop our pride and admit it. Instead of trying to explain away difficult concepts or hang up on tricky questions, we would trust God in areas where we don't understand. So what does a great disciple look like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like the apostles wrapped up in a dumb argument about who's the greatest. What it does look like is this. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's whoever humbles himself 
like a child. Whoever regains their innocence and preserves their innocence like a child. It's whoever trusts their father implicitly like a child. This is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so I have to ask this morning, how many children do we have in the audience? How many of those who have come to their father, come in humility, come in their innocence, come in their trust? Maybe it is that you have, uh, you have grown up in the, in the worst sense possible that you have uh, eaten the fruit, so to speak, believed Satan's lies and think that you're a big boy because you can sin how you want. Jesus says you need to get small again. You need to become like a child. And we can help you do that right now as we stand and sing. with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy.